I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Past Imperfect. In this episode, please be advised that there are frank discussions about suicide. And if you're affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is a furniture restorer, eco-designer and television presenter. Jay Blades became a household name fronting the BBC series The Repair Shop, the lockdown phenomenon with 6.5 million viewers in which objects are lovingly fixed and put back together in a picturesque thatched barn. His own life story is one of restoration and repair too. His father was not around when he was a child and when he did finally meet him, he discovered that he was one of 26 children his father had fathered in different countries. He suffered appalling racism, is also dyslexic and was homeless for a while. But he's refused to be destroyed by his background. Explaining the popularity of the repair shop, he says, if something's broken, you can put it back together. And sometimes that's quite a metaphor for us in life. Jay Blades, thank you very much for joining us. Why do you think the repair shop has been so successful during the pandemic? Do you think people are looking for some sort of comfort of putting cherished heirlooms back together and reconstructing the past? Is there a kind of sense of healing, do you think? Good question. First of all, I'd say thank you for that intro. That was unbelievable. (laughs) I'm listening to that intro thinking, who is this guy? Like, is that me? Um, So, yeah, thank you both um, for having me on here. And it's beautiful. Thank you for talking to us. But the repair shop, I think the reason why it's been successful during lockdown, and it was kind of successful before lockdown, but I think everybody needed some form of reassurance during lockdown. Everybody needed that kind of like, it's going to be okay. And the repair shop gave you that. It still gives you that feeling of, we're just going to give you a hug. For an hour, you're going to sit down with us and we're just going to make you feel good because people are doing something for people that we don't really know. And we're just being nice and being kind and being part of a community. And that's what the repair shop offers. So I think that's why people like kind of liked it, really. And it also feels like a sort of antidote to the throwaway culture of our age. And does it, do you think it's important that it, it isn't about the monetary value of the items? Unlike the antique show, it's much more about the sentimental value, isn't it? Yeah, I think the sentimental value, a, a lot of people don't really... Well, when I look at TV... Um, you see there is a lot of shows that are basing things on money. They're the game shows, obviously, that you've got to win a prize. Um, and then there is the shows that talk about how much it's worth. If you took it to auction, this is what you could get. But the reality is, I think, for me and everybody at the repair shop, when you try to put a value on an emotional item, it's virtually impossible. You might have something that's just 
not worth anything but to that family to that person it is priceless mm. we've had items that people have had in their family broken for over a hundred years and it's like well why have you kept this it's because it's the family legacy and when you look at the item you think well it isn't really anything but to that family it's like it's everything it talks about all of their legacy it talks about what their grandfather or their great 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 grandfather or grandmother did and it's just keeping that family history and that to me is worth much more than money and what do you think the most precious item from your own childhood is is there something that you fixed early on or that you still have in the back of your repair shop that you haven't fixed yet no i don't have anything like that i think the only thing that they've passed down through the generations has been my um, resilience, my kind of determination to carry on going on. So repairing-wise, and the only thing that I've got, I could say, it's going to sound quite weird, is is me. I'm the only person mm-hmm. that um, needs constant repairing. I think we all do. Constantly need repairing, um, need modifying. But that's what my family's passed down. I think um, this resilience to life and just saying, right, I'm going I'm to do it. Because I've been in some really, I've been down, and if it wasn't for my DNA, I don't think I would have got back up. That's so fascinating. And we want to take you back to your childhood. And you grew up in Hackney. And in fact, your yes. first home, I think, after you were born was a refuge. Well, basically, my mum came over from the Caribbean, came over from Barbados. She came over when she was about 14 years old. Her mum was already here. And she, her mum then married not my mum's father, but another guy. And... My mum then came to live with them, but it was a bit rocky. And I think she became pregnant. And once she became pregnant, she got kicked out of the family home. And then she had to go into a refuge because mm. the man who contributed towards my birth um, didn't really offer any support or, yeah, he wasn't there, basically. And what's the first home that you remember? Because the Hackney in those days must have been very different from the sort of Hackney of sourdough bakeries now, isn't it? <laughs> Hackney in the 70s and the 80s was completely different. Hackney was kind of like a rundown area. People didn't really want to go there. The police were doing what they decided they felt was right at the time. Um, there was a lot of squatters in a lot of the big houses. There was a lot of rub. It, was, it, it wasn't a nice place to be, really. But I thought it was beautiful because that's all I knew. And um, I think the first house that I remember was the council estate on Kaysnuff Road, Morley Flats. I think it's called Nelson Mandela or something. It's called something else now. I don't know exactly what it is, but that's the first house that I remember or flat, I should say. And that was really when I think about it, I, I do start filling up because I had the best time when I was growing up in Hackney. I had a really great time unbelievable so you can't have had much money but why was it so great was there a real sense of community on the estate what was it you loved about it it was a sense of community Mm. um there was a community on the estate there was a community on other estates because my um cousins and aunties lived on other estates that i would go to and it was just everybody mucked in together you were all poor so as you was poor just because you're poor doesn't mean you're going to have a bad time doesn't mean that it's um like you you go through life with this cloud over you and it's always raining. I remember, and I was saying to a friend of mine the other day that I don't remember winter as my childhood. I really don't. You know what it is? Because you had such fun. And I was like, is it? And he goes, yeah, you had such a great time that you can't remember when it was cold. I said, the only time I remember when it was cold is when I changed schools and I was going to a school in Stoke Newton. It was um, 
Grasmere, Albion Road it was, and you had to wear short trousers. And I remember going to school with short trousers on, and it was freezing in the morning <laughs> and it was super cold. And that's the only time I remember it being cold, but I don't remember much about autumn or snowing times. Um, I only remember the sunny times. Your mum worked as a secretary and you had one brother. What did you learn yes. from your mum? Because she sounds fairly extraordinary. What I learned from my mum is you've got to get up and work. Simple. You've got to do it. Um, you, you couldn't be a layabout. So every Saturday you had to tidy up the house um, and then we had to go shopping. I had to carry the trolley and wait until I'd got back home and unpacked everything before you could go out and play. And um, yeah, basically, I learned from my mum a couple of things. I learned how to fight, actually. My mum taught me not to lose a fight. I remember I came in once and I was crying and she's like, what's wrong with you? Oh, I got beaten up by this kid. And uh, she said, well, what you do, you've got to learn to just punch him first. And I'm like, really? Yeah. yeah. She said, if someone's going to fight you, you know there's going to be a fight, hit first. And then think about it after. And I must admit, ever since that day, I think I must have been about seven years old, I never kind of lost the fight. It was always like I would punch first. Sometimes <laughs> it got me into a lot of trouble because some people were not talking to me. Um, they were talking to somebody else and I just punched them. I was very hot-headed, I must say. <laughs> and what about um, your dad? You, you just called him the man who contributed to my birth rather than your father. Yes. What yeah. did you know about him when you gr were growing up? I didn't know anything about him. I only met him when I was about 21. Um, yeah, when I had my, my, my son. I think, did I meet? I might have met him. I think he took me for a weekend when I was probably about four or five. I vaguely remember that. But the reason why I call him the man that contributed towards my birth and not my father or my dad is because to, to have such a label, you have to, you have to rise to that kind of stature no one can be called a manager if they're not managing anything yeah. you cannot be called a mechanic if you're not fixing cars um so for me you can't be called a dad or a father if you if your kind of behavior hasn't warranted that so he's just the man who contributed towards my birth that's all he is mm. was there another father figure in your life or anyone else who could sort of take his place i mean your mom sounds pretty good actually i have to say teaching how to fight but were there any yeah. other figures around <laughs> yeah. that could help you? The sad state of affairs is there was a lot of figures around and some of those figures were quite negative um, in some of the activities they were doing. So growing up in Hackney, you would look at some people that were doing naughty activities and you would think, wow, they've got all the respect, they've got the clothes, they've got um, the cars and people are looking at them in a particular way that you wanted. Um, but the one person I did take a really good, um, example from was my mum was with a guy called Lloyd, um, Lloyd McFarlane, and he was probably one of the smoothest characters I've ever seen in my entire life. He commanded respect just by walking into a room, just the way he dressed, the way he carried himself. It was like he was almost, in, in my eyes now, when I look back, this guy was like a destination. Like you could see he was somewhere where you wanted to be. And that's what my um, inspiration has been, I must say. Mm -hmm. When I dress and when I um, put on clothes or look after my clothes, it's all to do with him. He's been that massive role model in my life. And how did you feel when you did finally meet your dad properly when you were 21? Did you feel angry or did you feel almost a sense of repair in closing that circle and bringing him back into your life? Um, no, it's quite weird because I didn't know I was angry 
um, with not having a father figure around until I would say my 30s when I started doing therapy and um, because I was doing a lot of community work, what you then do is you do therapy yourself as well. Um, but when I met him when I was 21, there was no circle to be closed. It was almost as if I was a man by then and mm. I didn't really have a connection with him and he couldn't really tell me anything. He offered me nothing, I would say, that would um, allow me to make a connection and look up to him. I just looked at him as if he was any guy. It was almost as if it was someone I was standing in front of a queue. You know, like if you're in Sainsbury's or you're in the supermarket and you stand in front of someone, you don't really pay them any mind, do you? It's just like, how many things have they got in their basket? Am I going to get ahead of them or whatever? They're going to take long. Um, and that's about it. Mm. Um, I had no real connection with him. And I still have no real connection with him to this day. And how did it feel or, to discover that you had 25 half-brothers and sisters? Because that is an astonishing amount of, <laughs> of siblings but, to have, yeah. really. And are you close to all of them or some of them? Or are there some you've never met yet? Yeah, I... I I haven't met all of them. 25, um, I've met 11 of them. Um, and when I first found out, it was kind of like, I, I kind of knew it because he's, I had heard about him via uh, my aunties and my mum, roughly not, um, I jumped into a couple of conversations. We're not jumped into them, but I overheard them. Mm. And when I grew up, it was a case of children were seen and not heard. Um, so I heard conversations about him and women that he was um, having children with. So it, it was no surprise, really. And I think when I met, when I asked him, the thing that I was disappointed with was when I asked him, how many have we got? How many brothers and sisters are there? And he was just saying, this is it. You only have four. And I was like, well, I know there's more than that. Mm. And then I got explained via my sister. She told me how many there was. And then I got to meet a few. Um, and I have spoke to him recently. And I know he said to me he was quite annoyed with me telling everybody how many children he's got. And I said to him, <laughs> I, I said to him, well, if, if you're annoyed with that, please tell me how many do you have? Because there's some people who have contacted me recently stating they are my brother and my sister and all that kind of stuff. Out of the five that have contacted me, two are uh, my sister. And I had to clarify that with him. And um, he's like, well, why do you want to know? I said, well, just for peace of mind to know mm. how many you really have because they keep coming out the woodwork it's, <laughs> it's, it's impressive but it's quite annoying as well and he still didn't want to tell me so do you, is there any sense of family in that group or even a, a shared sense of trauma about the absent father or or do you just have no connection really with them i have a connection with probably about let me see one two three of them i would say but it is it's quite um it's, it's an embarrassing connection for some people. And I can understand that. Some people don't really want to know their siblings because it's like, this guy hasn't been in my life and I don't actually want to pay him any respect by continuing that family legacy of us staying in contact. So I'm probably in contact with, I would say, three of my sisters, really. Mm. Um, yeah, my oldest one who I met via social media, um, which was absolutely beautiful because I always knew I had an older sister. And when I got to meet her, it was just like, wow. Yeah, that was really, really special. Mm. Really special. I think we both cried for about 20 minutes, actually. And what was your experience of school like? Was that very different then? Or was that where you made your real friends? Um, I made my real friends, I would say, in the playground or on the council estate on a little green in the park. Um, 
playing bulldog and like kick the can and, and had. That's where I made a lot of friends. Also school, primary school was really good for me. Um, secondary school, I made some friends, but I made quite a lot more enemies, I must say, in secondary school. Um, secondary school was, um, it completely changed me 100%. In what way? What happened? When I went to secondary school in Highbury, I experienced racism for the first time. And I never knew what racism was. I remember going to school in my brand new uniform that I got from John Lewis in Holloway. And I felt super proud. Um, I had everything new. I looked the bee's knees. I felt, I, I felt, I felt really good. And then people were calling me names and I didn't know what these names were. So I was smiling. I think they was giving me nicknames. I just thought it was absolutely brilliant. And then when I took those names back to my community and there was some older members of my community that were a bit like missed saying well why are you calling me that name you're the same as that like that's not a nice name where'd you get that name from as a matter of fact and I said oh that's what they call me at school just thinking it's a nickname and the, the elders oh. said to me no that's a racist name and I'm like what they said yeah that's um that's race I'll tell you what we're gonna come to your school we're gonna see who's calling you these names and I'm like well, they call me this, that, and that. They're like, no, no, no. All of those names are racist. I think in the first year, my probably, I would say my third month of being in there, fighting all the way up onto my fifth year. It oh was just constant. God. Yeah. And did any teachers intervene at all? Or were they part of the problem? Did they see you as being the issue? Or did they realise that you were kind of on your own, fighting away, trying to get back some sense of normality in a, in a place which obviously felt really out of place in? Mm, I think teacher was very different. And I wasn't in, um, how can you explain it, that in my school you had different sets. So you had the P's, which were basically like the perfects. Um, you had the <sighs> M's, which medium learners. And then you had the L's, um, which was, learners and i was in the l's and it was kind of um it, 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 we we wasn't respected as a student at the school let's say um that we didn't really have much studying going on but a lot of substitute teachers and it was kind of a free-for-all so if an l brought something up it was kind of like yeah whatever like shut up um mm. because i remember in my school a lot of the l's used to get a lot of discipline so your housemaster would give you the slipper um, and that was a plimsoll that they used to have these plimsolls that had the material over the top and then a rubber elasticated top bit. He cut off that elasticated bit and you just had the sole and you used to get hit quite hard with that. And then um, you, after that, you would get sent to your assistant head teacher who would give you the cane. And then if you didn't flinch or didn't cry, you would get sent to the head teacher. And the head teacher had a... Um, the easiest way to put it is some people enjoy caning people. And that's what you could see in his eyes when he was caning us. It was, yeah, it was just the way it was. So I don't think teachers really cared about us. Whereas some of my friends who were in the P's and then there was the X's as well. I heard recently, I, I had to wait to get to 50 years old to hear about people being above the P's. Mm -hmm. There was a, 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 and they got treated like royalty. And it was like, <laughs> I didn't know. And then my friend who was in the piece, he said to me, Jay, did you know it's against the law to be caned? I said, what? He said, yeah, you, want, you weren't supposed to be caned. And I'm like, well, I got caned all the time. Like, it was just normal. I thought everybody got it. I said, no, you're not supposed to have got that. So, um, 
yeah, we got treated differently. They sound really sadistic. I mean, it sounds far worse than just punishment. It sounds like, you know, completely out of control, really. It, it, I would say, when I look back at it, after I've done a lot of work with um, children in, um, in kind of desperate situations, it's, yeah, I, I would say there was something different going on there. But I think it moved from a grammar school into a comprehensive and... Um, this was the way to discipline and manage those children. But what seems so incredible as well is that you were dyslexic, but that wasn't diagnosed at all at school. Um, and in fact, you were sort of classified as disruptive, partly because of your learning difficulties. How did that manifest itself? Did you feel yourself falling further and further behind? No, not really, because I, I've, what happened at secondary school was it was just constant fighting. Um, I, I didn't really see myself as falling behind because I didn't really do any schoolwork. I did no homework. I did no um, real lessons that I could actually talk about. Um, yeah, there was no, there was no understanding of okay, I'm falling behind. Even my friends who were in the higher classes, we never spoke about work. We, we never, yeah, we never spoke about it. So I didn't feel I was falling behind. I just thought this is this is school for me now. From the first year, it was like it's just going to be fighting. Did you start getting into trouble out of school as well? Did you find that once you started fighting in school that it just became instinctive <laughs> to do it wherever you were? Yes, definitely. It was quite sad. When you look at it now, it's a, a really easy path to fall down on. And it's a, it's a pattern that can be stopped. But at the time, in the 80s, no one was looking to stop that pattern. And also in the 80s, there was a lot of things that was going on with regards to how the police were treating um, young black men in Hackney um, and especially Stoke-Nanton. It was a kind of free-for-all. It was almost as if I would go to school in Highbury and it, it was a constant fight, a justification of your existence of someone, um, whether you was good or not good. And then you come back into your community and you have to do that fighting again because the police will stop and search you for no apparent reason, just apart from a, a law which was called the SUS law. Um, they suspected that you was doing something and you could have just been walking home from school and they would search you. Sometimes the police would um, put you into the back of a van and he hit you with a truncheon um, and then dump you in an area that was predominantly white. So you would have to navigate your way out of that kind of um situation there it was it was different in hackney i mean completely different mm. nowadays we have social media we have the uh, mobile phones that have videos back in those days you had none of that if you had no money you couldn't call anyone you could do a reverse charges um at a telephone box but your main thing was to get back i think for me anyway main thing for me when i was dumped off in certain areas was to get back to hackney where i felt safe but you must have felt furious, but also frightened, mustn't you? And it must have given you such a sort of view about authority figures and society. And how did it make you feel? Authority figures, yeah. I, I, I didn't trust them. Mm. Didn't trust them at all. I think when you have that kind of experience from teachers, when you have that experience from police, um, you then think to yourself, well, hold on a minute. These people who are in power are not actually looking out for you. So as they're not looking out for you, you then have to look out for yourself. And then you become a law onto your own. You then do things what you want to do. Um, and then I remember in Hackney, it was a case of if you ever saw the police and they would say, like, stop, come here, you, you would just run. That was basically it. It was kind of like a them and us in um, Stoke Newton and Hackney at the time with the police. So, yeah, authority, <laughs> no, never really respected them. Mm. And how much do you think Britain's changed then in the terms of racism? Do you still get? 
abuse either on Twitter or in the real world? Or, or do you think it has improved in some ways? I think things haven't really changed. I think what's happened is we've got more politically correct. So people are aware not to say certain things. But with the rise of social media, you can see some of the venom that's in people. There is still there. And I, it's quite sad, really, in this day and age that we have so many ways of communicating, so many ways of uh, reaching out to people across the world instantly. But we haven't done the one thing that I believe that can stop racism, which is communicate with each other, get to understand each other. And until we have that conversation and really delve deep into that conversation, are we going to be able to move forward? Because I've done a lot of work um, in the communities and I've done work with conflict resolution. So conflict resolution is about bringing two sides that are conflicting to come to a resolution. Simple as that. And then those people work together and they form a community that is just beautiful. You're listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and the TV presenter Jay Blades. We'll be back after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Past Imperfect. In this episode, please be advised that there are frank discussions about suicide. And if you're affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and the TV presenter Jay Blades. You went to university to study criminology or you spent your 20s working in factories and as a labourer, but then you went to study criminology as a mature student. Was that partly to try and resolve those bad experiences or overcome them? I think... It was the naivety. For me, I always go into environments um, that I know nothing about and then just do it. I remember when I got a job working in a modelling agency in Bond Street. Um, I never knew what a modelling agency was. And I just bowled up there and said, you've got an office junior um, position. I would like to do that job. 
And they're like, have you done any office work? Nah, I don't even know what an office is, mate. Um, have you worked for a modern agency before? What's a modern agency? And I think my, <laughs> the woman who was interviewing me just said, you know what, this guy, he's got, he's got some guts coming up here and just walking into this office. So I'm going to give you a job. And it was probably the best thing I ever did, um, meeting people from different, um, different side of town. So when I decided to go to university, it was exactly the same thing. It was like there was a friend of mine who I was doing some volunteering with. Um, we was having some heated discussions. And she, I said, where'd you get all your knowledge from? She goes, oh, I went to university. I said, really? What, what's that? She said, oh, you just go there and you, you get a degree and all that kind of thing. I said, all right, I've got to do that. Where's the uni? She said, oh, there's one in High Wycombe. So I went there and I just said to them, <laughs> I want to come here. I want to come to this university. And they said, well, what do you want to study? I said, I don't know. Like, what, what have you got? What can I study? She said, well, what are you interested in? I said, well, I like fashion. Um, she said, oh, you can do textiles or you can do, um, what was it? There was something, she, I think it was, um, it was something to do with textiles is what she said, but it's borderline fashion design and what have you. And then she said, um, what else? I said, well, I grew up in Hackney. I know a thing or two about crime. <laughs> she said, well, do criminology. I said, really? What's that? And she said, well, criminology is the study of crime and why people do crime. You look at the history and I said, really? Yeah, we may need to do studies on people in the East End and like those kind of areas. I'm like, oh, I'd like to do that. So that's what I studied, criminology, <laughs> um, not knowing it. And I remember the first time I went to university and they, um, I'm in this kind of lecture. They gave me a reading list and I just said to them, well, what is that? They said, well, these are the books you've got to read. I was like, wow, I've got to read books. So yeah, yeah. What did you think? I said, <laughs> I nothing. So um, I didn't actually go to university to... Um, combat the injustice or anything like that. I went to university because I thought I was going to get some knowledge and that was it. Mm. Um, very naive. Very, very naive. And it was only when you got there that you found out that you were actually dyslexic, didn't you? That your reading age was only 11 at the age of 30. Yes. How did that feel? Yeah. Did you actually feel quite relieved that there was kind of label that was on it or did you feel really cross that no one had picked it up before? I felt really relieved. I didn't really feel cross. What, one thing, what I've always done, and I, I don't know how I've done that, I never blame anybody for what's happened to me and just take it as that's the way it is. Um, so yeah, I didn't feel cross. I was like, cool. This, this I've got a label. Um, I can tell people like, look, I, I can't read that well. And I got so much help at university that it was like brilliant. So it was cool to be um, dyslexic or have the reading ability of an 11 year old, which was like quite nice actually. Yeah. So do you still struggle with reading and writing now? How does that affect you in your career and your life now? Um, I still have problems with it now. And luckily with the phones that we've got, you can get it. Most stuff can be read out to you. Um, I can do voice notes to people. A lot of people send me emails, but I don't really read them. Um, and because the emails are like, not good for me. They hurt my head. Reading anything hurts my head. Um, it like, gives me a headache. And I remember I've got a PA now. Um, and she, when she came on board, she was like, I said to her, well, I've got a few emails in my email box. You're going to have to clear those up first of all. And she said, well, how many have you got? I said, I think I've got a couple of hundred. And then she got back to me, like, a, I think it was a, the first day that she <laughs> started work. She said, did you know you've got 12,000 emails? <laughs> unread. Yeah, unread. I was like, oh, is it? Said, yeah it's gonna take a little while to clear those i said oh okay no problem she said you don't answer the emails i said i told you she said i didn't know it was that extent um but i get a lot of emails a lot so i don't yeah i don't i don't really answer them don't talk but now she deals with all that for me 
We've interviewed quite a lot of dyslexics and they think most of them that their dyslexia has actually contributed in some way to their success because their brains think differently or they've compensated in a different way and they probably yeah. feel they're more original and more creative sometimes because they've had to really cope with a whole different way of learning. Do you think it helped mm. you? Um, I, I do think it's helped me and I think this first for learning, um, even though I call it naivety, I will go into situations that I know nothing about simply because of my dyslexia will just say, I want to learn that. I want to understand it. I ask questions. I'm in a perfect role at the repair shop because they don't give me what I used to. They used to send me emails with like a one page of who's coming in, what the item is, et cetera, et cetera. I've never read it. And they didn't realize that until three years later. They was like, hold on a minute, Jay. You, you don't read the stuff we send you, do you? I was like, no, I don't. They're like, it takes us a long time to prepare that stuff. <laughs> but you're, you're not reading. Hold on. You're not reading it. So, yeah, I'm dyslexic. I, I don't like reading. And they said, so really, you're just asking someone straight. You're, you're just talking to them. And I said, that's exactly it. I just want to learn stuff as it is. Um, and I think we learn best by just speaking to people mm. and just finding out. And, um, yeah, that's what I've always kind of done. Not really... Not really, I, I think I am creative. Don't get me wrong, I am creative, but I'm more wanting to learn, just find out about people, find out how something works, take it apart, try to do something in a completely different way than it's normally been done. And it's like, yeah, that's cool. That's that's quite nice. As long as it makes me feel okay, then, yeah, that's all I go by, really. Mm. And one of the first things you did after university was to set up a project teaching young people how to restore and sell old furniture. But then that really fell apart, didn't it? Because the funding dried mm. up and your marriage broke down as well. What happened? Yes. Can you just talk through the men the effect on your mental health? Um, of that? Yeah. Mm. Well, first of all, when I left uni, I set up a charity called Street Dreams, um, with my ex-wife um and that was supporting young people who were on the streets or doing naughty behavior to do something positive funding started drying up so we then came up with an idea of setting up this project called out of the dark which taught young people how to restore and revamp old furniture i knew nothing about that so i went to the community and asked them to teach me how to um do that and they taught me and the young people how to restore furniture and we were very successful and then um, a few things happened that funding kind of went down and our, there was a big job we was going to do. And we just kind of hit rock bottom. Personally, with my relationship with my ex-wife, that hit rock bottom as well. Um, and the whole thing within, I was a, a, I was the type of person in the community that everybody used to come to to receive support. And um, I would give them support. So when I needed support, there wasn't anybody I could basically go to. So one of the things I did was I run. Um, I got in my car and I just disappeared. Once the, the business had fallen, um, I had no kind of standing. I had nothing. I, I, I felt, um, I felt as if I couldn't see myself in tomorrow. And it's a weird thing to explain but anybody who's who has suffered like either a breakdown or um, a mental block, you have this kind of void. You're existing, but you're not existing. You're you're here, but it's almost as if everything is. You know, like if you're driving a car and you you're driving down um, a lane that has trees on both sides. 
you you notice the trees are there, but you don't notice the trees are there. And that's what it was like living when it when I just hit that particular point. I, I didn't want to exist really and truly because I couldn't see me existing. So mentally, what it did for me is it, it just destroyed me, full stop. Anything that can destroy you and not get you to see tomorrow is really, really strong. And that's what it did. It broke me completely. Um, yeah. Were you actually suicidal? I mean, did, how, how was it? Because you yeah, were homeless yeah. and you almost stopped eating, hadn't you? Was there a moment well, when you not, just thought, I might as well give up? There was a moment when I got in the car. I was in the car, I was driving. And basically, and this is my naivety again, um, but I was in that void. I was in that kind of um, place where I didn't really exist. Everything around me was just like whizzing by. And my intention was to drive up the motorway and go at a nice pace, just like go at a really good pace and drive into a bridge. That's exactly what I wanted to do. But then I realized as I'm driving up this motorway, oh, there's a barrier around the bridge. Okay, the next one. Oh, there's a barrier around the bridge. Okay, the next one, there won't be a barrier. And there's a barrier around the next one. And I constantly kept on doing this, driving up the motorway, when my full intention was to drive into a bridge. But all of them had barriers. And then it was only when my light started flashing on the dash that I needed petrol that I turned off and I was at the bottom of Birmingham New Road, I think it was, uh, where there was a petrol station. And I pulled in there, I bought some cigarettes, I put some petrol in the car, I drove to a kind of retail outlet, which was just across the road. And I parked the car up and I just watched. And I, I, I remember sleeping in that car for about a week because mm. it was like, it was a real void at time at the moment. It was kind of like, I could see people coming. I could see the night and the day, but I, I was just there. I was just sitting in that car, not going in. I don't even remember going toilet to tell them the truth. It was just like, numb it was only when i woke up um kind of like oh i need to eat my stomach was making a noise or whatever um and there was a mcdonald's across the road i went over there and it's going to sound quite comical um and this is what woke me up even more uh i don't know if you've ever been on a tube in london or wherever or you've been on public transport and there's someone standing quite close to you you can actually feel them without even looking at them you know they're there so I'm walking across the car park to go to this McDonald's and I felt someone behind me. It just, it just felt like, who is that? And what it was, it was my body odor. My body odor had its own presence. It had its own existence. I was like, I turned around, I was like, oh my days, that's me. Mm. And then um, I think I was embarrassed to go into McDonald's and there was a, a, a kind of hotel up the road. So I came out of that car park and went to this hotel um to get washed up because basically I, I i stunk um and i remember going to i went somewhere to buy like a shower gel or something and when i came back there was the police there was a psychiatric nurse and there was a community nurse that wanted to interview me at the hotel um and i was still in a kind of void i was like i need to wash i don't know what's going on we're going to interview you're going to interview so they interviewed they interviewed and then what woke me up even more oh, we don't have to section him. And I was like, hold on, who are you sectioning? Mm. He said, you, we don't have to section you. You're okay. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And that's when I realized that I was in a really uh, bad condition, that I could have been sectioned. And I wouldn't be talking to you guys now. Mm. So how did you get out of that? How did you turn it around? Um, I turned it around with the, the support of 
community and and love um there was a young man well not young man he's older than me a person who i classify as my brother now who basically took me under his wing and um yeah and looked after me and said to me that he's gonna um make sure i'm okay and that's the only time he's gonna give up on me and and he basically said to me like well really i'm never gonna give up i'm always gonna be there to support you and he allowed me to do something that i've never done um, and that was to cry in front of a man and just explain that I was broken. And he never took the piss. He, he, he just um, allowed me to open up. And it was beautiful. I mean, really, really beautiful. I didn't know at the time I felt so vulnerable. One, I hadn't had a wash. I was smelling real bad in his beautiful car, white leather seats. I felt totally bad for sitting in there with the way that I smell. Um, and then I, I just opened up and it's almost as if the way that I felt when I did that, I felt relieved, but it was like, I felt like a newborn baby, but as a 45 year old. So I felt totally naked, even though I had clothes on, I felt that exposed that it was like, whoa. Um, and then it was a case of just rebuilding myself after that. And how did you yeah. end up on TV? Because it is extraordinary to go from that to now, you know, you have film crews around you, you have people writing your scripts, doing your emails, PAs. How yeah. did you get it, that leap? The leap came from um, when I was doing Out of the Dark, the charity, there was a a, pro, a TV company, well, the Guardian newspaper done an um, article on me and they'd done a video to go with it. And that video basically went viral. All the TV companies started contacting me. And this was before... I left High Wycombe and had that breakdown. Um, and they, some of them had done a pilot with me. And then what happened when I went to Wolverhampton, um, started setting up shop there, then they got back in contact. So I started doing Money for Nothing, first of all. And then I'd done a show called um, Fill Your House for Free with Gok One. And then I'd done the repair shop. Do you still ever have moments where you think it might spiral out of control and that dark clouds coming over you again or or do you feel you're totally out of it no you're never out of it never i think there's always an opportunity but i don't walk through life um expecting it or worried about it what i do is i know the telltale signs so now i am more vocal now i'm more um in touch with my emotions and not embarrassed or scared to talk about them if i feel um negative i speak i talk to people if i need to um have someone to speak to like a counselor or offload i will offload um i think in life we all suffer mental health but we have different ways of dealing with it some people can't handle it and some people can handle it some people have a really brilliant res resilience so they can just deal with it but myself i was quite weak and as i was weak i needed to get support but i was believing that i was strong that i didn't need support so the greatest thing I believe I've ever done in my life was to accept my vulnerability, to accept that I am weak and I can ask for help. It's just because where, where I was brought up to show your vulnerability showed your weakness and made you a victim. And that's how I got brought up in Hackney. But realizing that that tough kind of exterior didn't allow me to be a full person and be able to talk to people, be able to recognize my vulnerability and um try and go forward because yeah by being vulnerable you go forward it's weird mm -hmm. really really weird i didn't expect that 
And do you think of your life as a sort of project of restoration and repair, like some of the things in your tool shed? Or, or do you think it's the reason that you wanted to do the show? Does, does it speak to you? Does every object actually make you feel th- that you've achieved something when you've repaired it? Well, my life, my life is definitely a, a, a constant repair job, constantly. Um, I think if anybody living now thinks that their life is complete, like they don't need repairing, I think they haven't really lived. They're not really reaching their full potential. So to reach your full potential, you always need to add and modify with regards to how you're living. Even if you look at what we went through last year, all of us had to modify. We had to stay at home, keep two metres apart, wearing a mask, sanitise, washing hands, and so on and so forth. The repair shop, I would say, I don't really repair them. I'm, I'm more the host. So for, for the experts, every repair that they do, they do it because of the person that's brought it in. They do it because they know how much it means to that person. So it's almost as if you're helping that family then repair themselves, repair their history to then have a beautiful future. Because once you have that item repaired, you can then talk about the history of it. You can talk about that person in the present text. Mm. And that is what it's all about. It's about going forward. So for the experts, I believe that's the one thing you repair an item, you're repairing a family's history, and that is powerful. Mm. And looking back to your 11-year-old self starting out at secondary school, what would you yeah. say to the boy who was fighting the whole time, facing bullies, facing racists, always in you know, scrapes, and you know, being beaten up by the teachers even? What would you yeah. say to them? What would you wish that you'd known then that you know now? It's a really good question. But because of the way that my mind thinks, I would say... To an 11 year old things are going to get better that's it because i believe everything that's happened to me has got me to where i am now and it's happened for a reason there's a reason why i had to suffer racism um and those guys i am really grateful for the way that they've treated me because it's made me realize that i don't want to treat people that way it's made me realize that you can be hated because of the color of your skin and there's nothing you could do about it But what you can do is put back into the society, make sure that you um, are there to support people who might be going through the same sort of thing as you did. That's what everybody has taught me. So even when I fell down um, and had that breakdown, it's taught me to just be open and to accept that vulnerability. But I would never have done that if I hadn't fallen down. So I have to fall down to get back up. I have to receive hatred to understand how not to give hatred back to someone. So um, I would say just enjoy it and it's going to get better. Do you think in some ways the adversity you faced as a child and throughout your life actually has given you an edge and made you in some ways more determined to succeed and, and show the bullies wrong? I would say no. I'm not, I'm not really trying to show anybody, um, show them wrong. What, I, what I'm trying to do in this life now is influence people that I'm never going to meet. And what that basically means is everything I'm doing is much greater than me. It's to leave a legacy. It's to leave a kind of ripple. So I've done a number of, um, well, I've done community work for a number of years, probably 20 plus years. And I view myself as a pebble. So if you throw a pebble into a pond, let's say, and then the ripples it creates, they go to the side, they go to to the edge. And then every now and again, those ripples come back. So imagine I'm this pebble that you've thrown into a pond and it's at the bottom of this pond and it's looking up. It's seen all these ripples. So those are all the young people that I've come into contact with and I've mentored over the years and stuff like that. Every now and again, 
the ripples come back to the original source. So I've been very fortunate to mentor um, a young girl called Leanne from a group called Little Mix. And recent, well, I think it was last year she contacted me. I'm in contact with her all the time anyway. I send her a thought of the day every day, as I do with all the young people. And she contacted me and said, Jay, I would like to give back. I want to use my influence to give back. So it was almost as if, well, not almost, it was those ripples coming back. So I'm this pebble looking up and she's one of those ripples that came back. And I've had that on a number of occasions, but it's one of the biggest ones um, because I'm uh, a trustee on a charity that she set up called the Black Fund. Um, and it's like, wow, I don't need to prove anybody wrong. What I need to do is just make sure that I am creating a path or leaving some crumbs for people to understand you can achieve something. Do not fulfill the stereotypes that some people might believe of you. Um, if you look at me being on TV, there's not many black people who are doing what I do. The majority of black people that are on TV are either linked to sport, comedy or music. None of them really are linked to craft in the way that I am. Mm. So it's like you can do things completely different. So influence people that are not even here yet. It's like planting a tree that you're not going to get the shade from. It's like, that's what it's all about. It's not about proving the past wrong because the past is the past. The future's brilliant though. I'll tell you that now. <laughs> Jay Blades, thank you very much for talking to us. No problem. Thank, thank you for listening. been listening to past imperfect with alice thompson rachel sylvester and the tv presenter jay blades this has been a wireless studios production for times radio produced by ben mitchell to make sure you never miss an episode you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and listen back to our previous guests on the times radio app we'll be back with another past imperfect next week until next time thanks for listening If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.